The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We are continuing the message. I didn't plan on there being a part two. But there is, okay? Dangers within preterism. All right? Now, last week we talked about this, and I dealt with several different doctrinal issues that are coming under the umbrella of preterism. And because I got so much feedback over this this week, positive feedback, of course some negative feedback, I thought it would be profitable to expand this topic and deal with it a little bit more. So, now I said last week, and I tried to make it as clear as I could, I am a full preterist. I have been a full preterist for 22 years. To me, preterism is the only eschatology that makes sense. It's the only eschatology that takes the time statements at their face value. Soon actually means soon in the preterist view of eschatology. This generation means the generation to which Yeshua was speaking. In Matthew 24, 34, Yeshua says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, if you look at the way Yeshua used the word generation, I think it would be abundantly clear that it always refers to His contemporaries. It's the Jewish people of His own period. Yeshua here very plainly and very clearly tells His disciples that all the things He's been talking about in this chapter we're going to come to pass in their generation. Now this includes the gospel being preached in all the world, the great tribulation, the coming of the Son of Man. You know, this is so clear that it greatly troubles those who hold to a futuristic eschatology. And Yeshua here uses the near demonstrative, this generation. Every time this is used in the New Testament, it always refers to something that's near in terms of time or distance. Yeshua doesn't say that generation, the far demonstrative, because He's not talking to some other generation off in the future. He's talking to that generation. The people He was speaking to. This generation. I think that's clear. But so many people miss it. So preterism, I think, as an eschatology, is right on. I think it's simple. I think it's clear. It's true to the principles of hermeneutics. But it's getting to the point that I don't really like to associate with the term preterist. My eschatology is definitely a fulfilled eschatology, but but there are some within the movement that just, I think, are giving it a very bad name. And when these people who hold some very unbiblical views call themselves preterists, and people, you know, they hear about preterist eschatology, so they go online. Let's look up preterists, and they come across some of these sites, and it's like, wow, these people think everybody's saved. These people think nobody's saved. You know, you can go all through the gamut. There's all kinds of stuff on there, and it's scary. There's a lot of people coming under that umbrella of preterism and bringing all their false doctrine with it. And because they say they're preterists, They discredit the eschatological view with these different doctrinal errors. And one of the doctrines that I think is discrediting the eschatology of preterism 
is the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. Now, we talked about these last time, and I mentioned this briefly last time, but I want to kind of spend our time this morning dealing with that because there are many people from the Church of Christ who have embraced the eschatology of preterism. Thanks to Max King, that's well known within the Churches of Christ, and a lot of those people are coming, so their eschatology is now correct. But their soteriology is an absolute abomination. Okay? It really is. Baptismal regeneration is the belief that baptism is necessary for salvation. Or more precisely, that regeneration does not occur until a person is baptized. Despite whatever else you've done, believe, repented, whatever you want to do, add to the thing. You're not born again until you come out of the tank. All right? Now, let's talk just for a minute about regeneration so we understand what we're talking about here. Hodge says that regeneration is the instantaneous change from spiritual death to spiritual life. Regeneration, therefore, is a spiritual resurrection, the beginning of a new life. Okay? That's what it is. Thiessen says, Regeneration may be defined as the communication of divine life to the soul, as the impartation of a new nature or heart, and the production of a new creation. See, regeneration is synonymous with the term born again or born from above. Regeneration is the same as receiving a new heart, Ezekiel 36.26. Or it's what Ephesians 2 calls being made alive. 1 Peter calls it being called out of darkness into His marvelous light. All these terms refer to the theological position of regeneration. Being made alive again. Now, like anything else, there's many different views of regeneration within churchianity. Okay, the visible people gathering together at the church, churchianity. I don't want to say Christians because some of these views can't be Christian. All right, The Pelagian view says that regeneration is a moral transformation. It's a work of man. Now, most liberals today hold to this view. This view was condemned by the church in 431 at the Council of Ephesus. Practically, the Pelagian says, I can save myself by my works. The first Pelagian was Adam. He tried to cover his sin with leaves. All right? God had to kill an animal and clothe Adam and Eve with the skins that pictured a sacrificial lamb that would come, that would do away with sin. Now, we have the Catholic view that's slightly different. It says that regeneration is accomplished by baptism. So, it is a work of man through a divine ordinance. Now, the Church of Christ holds this same view of baptismal regeneration. And the Church of Christ is very, very close to the Catholic view. The only difference is they don't baptize babies. Okay? But they, babies don't sin, haven't sinned, babies are pure, they're innocent, according to them, so they don't need to be baptized, so they just baptize adults. Alright? But their views are very similar. This view is called semi-Pelagianism. Regeneration is not exclusively God's or man's work, It's the fruit of man's choice to cooperate with the divine influence. And they teach that the work of man, a decision to trust Christ, is prior to the work of God. This view is 
held today by most evangelicals, they believe it was necessary for them in an act of their own will to cooperate with the grace found in the preaching of the Word of God. All right. Then there's the position that we hold here at Brian Bible Church, which would be called the Reform view. We hold the view of the Reformers. We believe ourselves connected with them. We believe the teachings that they put forth for the most part. And that's the fact that God made us alive who were dead. God made us willing who were unwilling. Salvation from beginning to end is a work of God according to the Reformed view. Now, having that understanding of regeneration, we now see that baptismal regeneration means that the act of water baptism conducted by a pastor or priest contains regenerative or life-giving power. Baptismal regeneration is strenuously promoted by the churches in the Restoration Movement. Now, this Restoration Movement is what the Church of Christ are all about. The Restoration Movement is part of the broader movement called Restorationism. It began in the early 19th century when a conglomeration of members from different groups, denominations, decided they had gotten away from the basics of Christianity. So, Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, Luthers, they all, Lutherans, they all abandoned their former denominations in hopes of establishing a church based solely on Christianity taught in the New Testament. Now, with their belief in Jesus as the only model and the Bible as the only sacred book, they endeavored to reestablish Christ's church as it had been during the time of the apostles in the days after Pentecost. So, I mean, that's definitely a good view there, a good ambition to try to get back to just having a pure church. Their goal was for everybody to abandon their dividing religions and become united as one church under God's rule. Among the most influential leaders of this movement was Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone. Now, they don't view themselves as a denomination, which is actually kind of funny, because they have all these standards that they all agree and they all hold to, but they constantly condemn denominationalism. All right. The most troubling thing to me about the Restoration Movement is their doctrine of salvation, which to me totally destroys the Gospel. According to a Christian Restoration Association publication, what you must do to become a Christian, that's the name of the thing, involves four things. So this is from their own publication, what you have to do. You have to believe, I'm glad they have that one down. See, I would stop right there. I'm done. Okay? But they add some things, repent of sin. And I'm not sure what they mean by repent of sin, because repent, metanoia, means to change your mind. All right, But I think they view it more as a turning from sin. You have to turn away from sin. All right, Confess Christ. And the idea is you have to confess Him before men, so people know, you know who you are. And then you have to be baptized for the remission of sins. All right, so you got to do all these things. You need to admit your sinfulness, uh, your need for forgiveness. You got to repent. You got to accept Jesus as Lord, and you got to be baptized by full body immersion for the remission of sins. And here's the thing: you have to be baptized by a Church of Christ minister. Okay, it doesn't count if somebody else does it. Now, at this point, it is believed that one begins a new life and is reborn through the waters of baptism. Now, this directly contradicts the biblical doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone. 
without any of the added conditions or works. You're all familiar with these verses, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Now watch. It's not of your own doing. Okay? It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works. Why does God set it up this way? Because so no one will boast. No one needs to be boasting in the presence of God. Well, I was smart enough. I did this, I did that. No, you didn't do anything. God did it. Now listen to me. The idea of salvation by faith alone is an abomination to the churches of Christ. They, they, they rant against that. It's just, you know, it's against Scripture. Now last Sunday, Steve Baisden, who's a Church of Christ minister who has joined the preterist movement uh, several years back, he's become a full preterist, he did a podcast last week entitled True Belief. And I would have no clue about this, but somebody who watches us uh, sent me an email saying, you know, this is what Bazden said last week. Uh, what do you think of some of these things? You know, so I listened to it and I was like a little horrified. But uh, uh, I want to share with you some of the things he said and just look at what Scripture says. And, and whatever Steve says is very typical of this whole restoration movement. I mean, he just fits right in there. And here's the the podcast is called True Belief. It's on YouTube. Here's the link, because I want you to fact check me. I don't want you to say, oh, you said Steve said this, he didn't say it. Go back and look at it. I'm going to try to give you a reference to everything I say he said, so you can go back and check it out. Uh, I don't want you to think I'm trying to misrepresent somebody, okay? And I don't know Steve from Adam, uh, so I don't have anything against Steve, but I have a lot against this doctrine, okay? If you listen to the podcast, you will see that Steve holds to the doctrine of salvation that's laid out by the Restoration Movement. Completely. But because he holds to a preterist eschatology, because he comes under the umbrella of preterism, people think that this is how all preterists are. You know, if they hear about preterism, they go on a search for preterism on YouTube, they come across one of his videos and they come across this and they're like, wow, this is what preterists believe? No, preterists believe all kinds of things, all right? And there's, there's a ton of different views under that umbrella of preterism that, you know, we're not going to cover. I don't think many of them are as dangerous as the ones that I've mentioned. But I think this one is, because I think it is an attack on the gospel of Christ. Now, advocates of baptismal regeneration like Steve point to scripture verses um, like Mark 16, 16, John 3, 5, Acts 2, 38, Acts 22.16, Galatians 3.27, 1 Peter 3.21. These are, they'll run to these for their biblical support. And if you look at these verses, you'll, you'll see and you'll say, well, I understand why they would you know, indicate that you know, maybe people would think that baptism is necessary by looking at these verses. However, there are biblical and contextual sound interpretations of those verses that have nothing to do with baptismal regeneration. Steve says in 31 minutes, 10 seconds into the podcast, he says, people think that just because they can find a couple of verses that say you have to believe. A couple verses? A couple, really. That's a little bit of an exaggeration there. But don't mention baptism, therefore they can just choose to believe. He means they don't need to be baptized. They don't understand that true belief involves doing what Jesus said. They run to passages like John 3.16 and say, all you have to do is believe. Don't they realize that just 10 verses earlier, Jesus said, and then he quotes this, 
John 3, 5. Yeshua answered, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. All right, born of water there. You know how I understand that? Take a wild guess. Yeah, he says that's an allusion to water baptism. Okay? So in, the, in his view, regeneration happens only when a person undergoes water baptism. It doesn't matter what you've done prior to that. Believe, repent, confess, whatever. Until you are baptized, you are not born again. Which means you do not have eternal life. Now, let's look at this verse for a second. In considering audience relevance, which as a preterist, we should be pretty up on that subject, right? Christian baptism would have had no significance for Nicodemus at all. All, okay? He knew nothing of Christian baptism. And he never mentions anything about baptism anywhere else in dealing with this subject. So to stick baptism in here and expect Nicodemus to understand that, Nicodemus' misunderstanding leads Yeshua to explain his point in a slightly different way. Here he says, you have to be born of the water and the Spirit. Which is just a different way of saying what he said in verse 3, which was you have to be born again. Here he says, you cannot enter the kingdom of God, which is just another way of saying what he said earlier. You cannot see the kingdom of God. So Yeshua is saying the same thing, but in a different way, so Nicodemus will get it. So what is he saying in verse 5 was something that Nicodemus would understand. Now when water is used figuratively in the Tanakh, it, it habitually refers to the renewal or cleansing, especially when it's found in conjunction with the Spirit. For example, Isaiah 44.3, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. Okay, now God's not going out and got a big pitcher and pouring water on something, okay? This is a parallelism. He says, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Water was a blessing. It produced life. And here he's connecting water and the spirit. We also see this in Ezekiel 36.24 and 27. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So here, water and the Spirit come together to signify cleansing from impurity, to depict the transformation of heart that will enable people to follow God wholly. So the revelation that Yahweh would bring cleansing and renewal as water by means of His Spirit was clear in the Tanakh. Yeshua evidently meant that unless a person has experienced spiritual cleansing and renewal from the Spirit of Yahweh, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, God has to do something before you'll ever understand or see the kingdom of God. The text in John 3.5 has nothing at all to do with ritual baptism. Nothing to do with ritual baptism. Nicodemus would have never thought of that in this context. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know, I think that verse is pretty clear, and you probably do too, right? 
But the way Steve deals with this is he said, well, it says should not perish, not will not. Okay? So should means you might perish. Because if you have believed, but you don't get baptized, you're going to perish. So it should here. Doesn't mean won't. So he's saying believing only gets you part way. Baptism is still necessary. Now, let's look at this a little closer here. All right, the Greek text is here. All right, and I've highlighted in yellow there. The, the word pos there is whoever. Pistebo believes. Is in. Autos him. Me is not. And perish is apolimi. There is no word for should in the Greek text. Okay? It's not there. The verb apolimi is subjunctive. All that means is that it relies on the main verb believing in him. If the main section is true, then the subjunctive portions are true. It's simply saying that whoever believes in Christ doesn't perish. Now this wipes out Steve's argument here. You know, if you want to defend your doctrinal beliefs by a text, at least go into the original languages, okay? Don't trust the translation. Deal with the languages. Like I said, should is not in the text. It's just, if you believe, you will not perish. Alright? That's what it says. Steve goes on to say, 43 minutes, 26 seconds, believe here is a synecdoche. How many of you know what a synecdoche is? How many of you have ever heard the word synecdoche? Okay, cool. Well, this is, if you would have been in, anyone in the Church of Christ is familiar with this word, okay? Because this is a Church of Christ doctrine, all right? A synecdoche is a figure of speech in which part is put for the whole, all right? It's very similar to a metonymy. Like if I said, give me a hand, what do I want? I want, I want your whole, I don't want a hand. I don't want you to claim, yay, let's give him a hand. No, I want you to help me. So I'm saying hand, but it means I want all of you. I want you to come and give me some help. All right, that's a synecdoche. But see what's going on here? He says believe is a synecdoche. In other words, it's just a part of the whole. Believe just means, a, it's, a, it's a synecdoche that means there's a lot more that goes with it. All right? He says, true belief means you're going to do what he tells you to, meaning you're going to repent and be baptized. Then Steve says at 46.40, when God tells us to believe, that is inclusive of repenting, calling on his name, confessing him before man, and being baptized. So according to the Church of Christ doctrine, true belief covers a lot more than believing. See, because believing to them is a synecdoche. It's just a word that's a lot of other stuff's connected to it. Now listen to me. Believing means what you think it means. It means believing. It means believing a proposition is true. Alright? Gordon Clark taught that belief is understanding and assent to a proposition. If I tell you the check is in the mail... And you believe me, I've given you a proposition. Checks in the mail. Now, either you believe it or you don't. If you believe it, that's faith. That's belief. How? Because you have nothing to back that up. You're just counting on me. If I said it, you, okay, I believe you. I know you. And I can trust you, so I believe it. That's belief. It's believing something is true. It's not connected to all these other things. 
That's totally off base of what the whole doctrine of belief is all about. What the word itself means. A synecdoche represents the whole or part of a thing. The thing with synecdoches, though, they seem to apply to verbs. They seem not to apply to verbs, okay? And most of the New Testament urges faith are verbs, all right? And it doesn't seem to apply there at all. Now, to Steve, believing is a synecdoche that means doing a bunch of things. But when Yeshua told people to believe in Him and they would receive eternal life, the New Testament command for water baptism had not even existed, okay? There was only John's baptism. So how could Christ use a figure of speech as a present imperative to indicate something that didn't even exist yet? Now, you know, in Yeshua's mind, he's thinking, well, this is a synecdoche, or it will be, when I'm gone, later on they'll catch on. No, it's not anything like that. Faith is not a synecdoche. It's trust in the person of Christ and what He did to secure your salvation. Don't take belief and make it into a, you know, lock all these other things onto it. And that's what they're doing. They're attaching all this baggage onto faith so the gospel's destroyed because the gospel is a gospel of faith. But now we're going to add a lot of stuff to it. And listen, it, it's kind of open-ended how many things you want to add. Because you'll see in a little bit that they add more than that. Acts 2.38, this is, if you understand the Church of Christ at all, you'll know this is one of their favorite verses. Okay? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Yeshua the Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Is baptism necessary for forgiveness of sins? Well, you read this, and it does kind of sound like that. Well, there's a little Greek preposition here, is, that's translated for. That can also be, and often is translated, because of, or on behalf of. So the Greek text could actually be translated, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Yeshua the Christ because of the forgiveness of your sins. Therefore, baptism would not be a means of forgiveness. It would be the public declaration of the forgiveness of sins. Now, the Greek can go either way. I'm not saying the Greek has to go this way. It can go be either. But they say, well, we're going to only take it one way. We use the word for in the same way. Okay? For example, if I say that criminal is going to prison for his crimes. I don't mean he's going to prison in order to receive his crimes. He's going because of his crimes. Okay? So for, because of. Because you've been forgiven, be baptized. And I think that's the sense it's used here. Now, I said this last week, but I just can't stress this enough. There's only one book in the New Testament that is specifically designated for the purpose of evangelism. What is it? The Gospel of John, right? Only one book that specifically stated the, the reason this book was written is so that people would believe that Yeshua is the Christ and believing they would have life in His name. And in this book, He doesn't talk about baptism. Baptism is mentioned a couple times in reference to John the Baptist. Christ never talks about it. Never says anything about it. Nobody else says anything. you got to do this. Not If this is necessary... How did this mess up like this? This is serious stuff, people. I mean, God writes a book to tell us how to be saved, and He leaves some of the crucial elements out. Now, belief is loaded in that gospel because that's how you get saved. You know what else isn't mentioned in there? Repentance. 
That's interesting too. So many people say, oh, you've got to repent. Mm. Again, Lazarus just wasn't too educated when he wrote this book, I guess. Well, here's our choice. We can believe that God, through the Holy Spirit, wrote this book and knew what he was doing. Or we can believe the Church of Christ. Yeah. <laughs> people, you know, the Church of Christ saying, no, you know, it, it was, it, that book is not right. You have to add other things. You got to add repentance. You got to add confession. You got to add baptism. So baptism is necessary for salvation. Well, listen, Mike Heiser in his book, Reversing Hermon, talks in chapter 9 on the significance of baptism in relation to the sin of the watchers. Okay? And this is, this is really good stuff. He uses 1 Peter 3.21 here. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Yeshua the Christ. So Heiser argues here that the word appeal should be understood as pledge, and conscience should be understood as the, this, the disposition of one's loyalties. So in light, in this light, baptism is a loyalty oath. It's a public avowal of who is on the Lord's side in the cosmic war. Alright? It's letting the powers and the authorities know where you stand. This is why it was especially important in the Great Commission given to the eleven. They were about to invade the territory of these other gods, and those once enslaved to them needed to let them know where their loyalties lie, that we, we stand with Yahweh. And baptism was that symbol. It was like, we're on Yahweh's side. We're with Yahweh's people. It had nothing to do with affecting an inward salvation at all. People sense that war is over. I personally don't think that baptism is necessary today at all. All right? That's my personal belief. Because here's the thing. If Heiser's right on baptism, and I think he's got a strong case there, and if we're right on eschatology, baptism just doesn't carry the weight anymore. See, it was something that had significance mainly during the transition period. They were declaring their loyalty to Yahweh. It was a confession, so to speak. Never intended to bring salvation. Never indicated that way. Well, Steve winds up his podcast by saying this at 5303. He says, Believer, if you're not baptized, if you don't go to church, you're going to hell. You're as lost as lost can be. Do you see what happened there? Something has just been added to the synecdoche. What is it? Church attendance. So among the other things you have to do in order to receive regeneration, you have to go to church. Well, see, that's the thing. Here's, here would be my question. You know, if I'm at a church, because I like to ask questions, but if I'm at a church and the pastor says, if you want to be saved, you've got to go to church. Uh, every time the doors are open? Do I got to go Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, or once a week, once a month? Wait a minute, we're talking about salvation here, are we not? According to him, we are. So this is a question I need an answer to. How many times do I need to go? Is two times a year, Christian, Christmas and Easter, can I be a C&E Christian? 
How many, you know, it's, he doesn't define it. He just says, if you don't go to church, you're going to hell. What church? Well, Church of Christ. Okay? That's how he would define it. So he has now broadened the synecdoche. We're adding things to it because if you don't do these things, you're, you're going to hell. The synecdoche keeps growing. Now look, notice what he says here. This is, I think, significant. Who is going to hell? Believer. Believer. See, in his soteriology, you can be a believer. You've gone through the steps. You've done, I don't know, any you've done through all the hoops. Now you're a believer, but you stop going to church. Now you're an unbeliever. So, what did you have eternal life? I don't think so, because it would be eternal. All right, so they must have another plan for life here, temporary plan, in case you quit doing all. The, this is salvation by works, people. This is no different than Catholic theology. Salvation by works. Then Steve says this at 5340. The church, there's only one of them. It's not the one that preaches and teaches the truth. And it's the one that preaches and teaches the truth. <laughs> yeah, it's the one that teaches. It's not the one out here teaching you a bunch of false doctrine. Listen, by false doctrine, he would mean salvation by faith through grace. He would, that would be false doctrine to him. Okay? Now watch this. And in West Michigan, I know of no other than the one that meets right here in Londington. 3816 West Fountain Road. That's where we're at. West Michigan, look this up, has a population of over 1.5 million. So in this population of 1.5 million, there's one church that teaches the truth. He goes on to say, when you want the truth and only the truth as the, they had it in the Bible, you'll only find it with us. He might not be many things, but at least he's humble. Okay? <laughs> At least he's humble. You know, I don't, you know, among the things that you, you can do that are sin that would disqualify you from salvation, my question would be would pride be one of those things? Because, I mean, the arrogance to say there's one church, one church in West Michigan that teaches the truth as it's in the Bible. One. And, and the sad thing is, people, this is, this is being pushed now at Bible conference. I had a lady call me this week. Again, I got a lot of feedback because of last week's message. She went to William Bell's conference this past October. And these guys were preaching this stuff from the pulpit. Okay, They're, they're preaching, you've got to be water baptized. So she said, afterwards I went to William Bell and I said, is it necessary for me to be baptized to be saved? And she said, William Bell told her, if you are not baptized by the church of Christ, you will not be in the kingdom of God. So you might have been baptized, but it doesn't count if it wasn't Church of Christ baptism. People, this is an attack on the gospel. And unless you think that maybe Bayesden is a little out of sync with the Church of Christ, he's not. He's dead center in the Church of Christ. This is their teaching. I had a man from Carolina call me a couple weeks back. said he was talking to Holger Niebauer, another Church of Christ guy. And Holger told him, you're not a Christian unless you've been baptized by a minister of the Church of Christ. Holger lives in Michigan also. 
he must be far away from this other guy because so, he, he wasn't counted in there being a, someone who teaches the truth. He said he would drive down to North Carolina and baptize this man so he could be saved. Whew. That's a lot of power resting on these people that they can just hand out salvation. Hand out the new birth. This is an attack on the gospel, people. This is an attack on the gospel. In an article published in Table Talk magazine, entitled, What is a Cult? Edmund Gus writes this, Do, Does the organization claim to be the only one that has the truth? You'll only find it with us. Does it claim it is God's sole channel or only true church? Yes. Yes, that's what the Church of Christ says. As a result, are all other religion organizations to be rejected as false? Yes. Well, they, that's neat. They fit all the marks of a cult. If a person leaves this group, is salvation lost? Yes, I had someone tell me last week. And as soon as you try to get out of this group, they condemn you. These are marks of a cult, and they all fit with what the Church of Christ teaches. They're preaching a work salvation if you don't obey you go to hell. Obey what? Obey, they got a lot of different things I'll add to that, people. Church attendance. This is quite different from what I see Paul preaching and teaching, okay? Romans 5.19, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. Because of Adam, we all became sinners. So by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. People, we are righteous because of Christ. We stand in His righteousness. So Church of Christ says you are saved by a ritual. And again, this is the same thing the Catholic Church teaches. And listen to me, people. This is why there was a Protestant Reformation. To break away from these kind of doctrines. To break away from this kind of teaching. And let me say that it seems to me that the Restoration Movement is an anti-Reformation movement. All right, they're moving away from the Reformation right back to where the Catholic Church was before the Reformation came about. What the Church of Christ teaches is exactly opposite of what the Protestant Reformers taught. Now, we at Berean Bible Church, we are Reformed in the way we view the world and the way we view the Bible. This means we identify with most of the teaching of the Protestant Reformation from the 16th century. That's where we stand. We're not ashamed of that. And we hold that because we think that's what the Bible teaches. We believe in the absolute sovereignty of the Almighty God. Sola fide, salvation by faith alone. Sola scriptura, the scriptures alone. So we think that the Reformation was very important. And how you view the Reformation will depend on your theological persuasion, of course. Roman Catholic historians and the Church of Christ ministers interpret the Reformation as a heresy inspired by Martin Luther. While Protestant historians interpret the Reformation largely as a religious movement that sought to recover the purity of the primitive Christianity that is depicted in the New Testament. The Reformers sought to develop a theology that was in complete accord with the New Testament and believed that this could only be a reality as long as it came from Scriptures and not from the authority of the church. In other words, the church doesn't tell us what we believe, we've got to get it from the Scripture. The Reformation proper began on October 31st. 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the castle church door in Wittenberg. 
Martin Luther is one of the most influential figures in church history. His writings were responsible for fractionalizing the Catholic Church and sparking the Reformation. His central teaching that the Bible is the central source of religious authority and that salvation is reached through faith and not deeds shaped the entire course of Protestantism. Church history is a subject that few 21st century Americans know much about. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Fortunately, we are not the first people who have been engaged in this battle of the Christian life. And there is nothing which can be more greater to help us next to Scripture than the history of the church. We need to know about the Reformers and what they taught and how it came about so we understand that you know, they're breaking away from a dead doctrine. They're reviving the Scriptures. Martin Luther's father wanted him to study law. That really wasn't all that something he wanted to do that bad, but it's, his testimony is kind of funny. He got caught in a thunderstorm that scared him to death. It scared him so bad that he promised St. Anne that he would become a monk if he lived through the thunderstorm. It must have been a bad storm, people, all right? About two weeks later, he entered the monastery of the Augustan Order at Erfurt. Here in 1507, he was ordained and he celebrated his first Mass. In 1511... Luther was transferred to Wittenberg, and during the next year, he became the professor of Bible and received his doctorate of theology degree. Now, at this time, Luther's still unconverted, okay? He's unconverted. He's a doctor, got his doctorate in theology, he's teaching the Bible. In his lectures from 1513 to 1515, he expounded the book of Psalms. Around 1515, he began to expound the book of Romans, and it was in 1515 that Luther had what he called the Tower Experience. He said that Romans 1.17 jumped out of the Scripture and brought him to God. That was his key verse. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It convinced him that only faith in Christ could make one just before God. From that time on, sola fide, justification by faith alone, and sola scriptura, the idea that the Scripture is only only authority for sinful man in seeking salvation, became the main points of his theological system. He came to realize that God's righteousness in Romans 1 is not the justice that we have to fear, but the positive righteousness that God gives believers in Christ. It's a righteousness they receive by personally trusting in Christ. He began to understand that the Roman Catholic Church didn't square with Scriptures. As he hears confessions at Wittenberg, he hears that people are trusting in their works. And so Luther taught that man, because of the fall, was so bound by sin that he could not of himself do anything to veil himself to get out of the situation, but that God had to do it. That is what's called the doctrine of total depravity. Luther believes that man has the power of choice, but that the will of man was not free. Luther believed that after the fall, man's will was selfish, sinful will. He said man could choose. He was uncoerced. But man fallen had no desire for anything except evil. As long as he is inclined only to evil, he chooses only evil. Edwards, in his essay, The Freedom of the Will, wrote that all men everywhere always act according to their strongest inclination at any given time. After the fall, the Bible teaches that man's strongest inclination at any given moment is always to sin. See, fallen man loves darkness. He hates light. So whenever he's confronted with a choice between darkness and light, 
He chooses darkness. He chooses what is attractive to him. And Luther and Erasmus, they got into it. They disagreed. Erasmus taught that the will of man was always able to choose good or evil. So he was an Arminian, okay? Luther accused Erasmus of Epicureanism. The idea that the universe is basically chance. It teaches that God hasn't foredained everything. Luther said that Erasmus taught an indeterminate God. A God that hasn't determined everything. He said that was semi-Pelagianism. Luther said that this view was not only heresy, but blasphemy. Okay, this is, they don't worry about being PC back then, okay? They said what they you know, believed, and, and that's what they taught. And he said more than blasphemy, he said it was atheism. He says because if God is not totally in control of everything, then he's not God. And he said Erasmus' God didn't exist and that he was teaching a form of atheism. That's a pretty strong argument there, people. John 3.19 says, and this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. Alright? They love darkness. A person always chooses according to his strongest inclination. He is in bondage to choose what he loves. Now you might ask, well, where's the bondage in choosing what we love? What's the bondage in choosing what we want? Well, the bondage comes in the result of that choice. The consequence that they don't want. They want to live forever. They want joy, but he hates righteousness. Luther said, it is not in your power to turn to God. If you think that it's in your power to turn to God, you have missed the whole point of the Reformation and don't understand total depravity. It is not in your power to turn to God. You're a sinner. You're dead. You're eaten up with corruption. He had a high view of mankind. Every choice of yours is evil, not good. So how can we turn to Him who is light, righteousness, holy, and good? Luther taught you have a duty to return to God. You have a duty to believe in God, but you don't have the ability. See, he taught responsibility does not imply ability. John 12, 36, While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Now, Yeshua says believe in the light here. So most believers today would say, well, because Christ commands us to believe in the light, we must have the ability to believe in the light. But that's not correct. Look at the following verses. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. All the miracles he did, and they're like, nah, we don't believe. You're raising dead people. You're walking on water, transporting ships. Nah, we don't believe it. Man, they are blinded people. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what we heard from, what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. They couldn't, they didn't believe because they couldn't believe. Scripture states dogmatically some things that a lost man cannot do. Man cannot see or perceive the kingdom of God until he is first born again. Can't understand it. Can't grasp it at all. It's all darkness. It's foolishness to him. Even with the presence of Christ performing miracles, watching those, they just were blinded. 
Yeshua answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And see, the church of Christ takes that as baptism, and so therefore you can't be in the part of the kingdom of God unless you're baptized. Listen, man, unregenerate man cannot understand spiritual things until he's first given life. In regeneration, God gives us spiritual life, which includes a desire for Him. If God gives us desire for Christ, we, are, we act according to that desire and we choose Christ. But what we must understand is that man cannot come to God until he's first effectually called by God. I know we've gone over this verse a lot of times, but this is a key passage. John 6.44, Yeshua says, no one can come to me. Nobody. None. No, not you, not him, not anybody can come to me unless there's a condition. What's the condition? Well, the Father who sent me has to draw him. Does God draw everybody? No. He says, and I'll raise him up the last day. Now, here's the key point here. Who's the Lord talking to here? Context, he's talking to unbelieving Jews. Okay? Let's back up a verse. Yeshua answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Now, this is a present imperative with a negative particle, which means stop an action that's already going on. Here's what I see Yeshua saying here. Stop your grumbling. The reason you don't understand who I am is because you have not been drawn by my Father. You are not part of the elect, therefore you're blind to spiritual things. You can't get it, you won't get it, so don't grumble about it. Now let me ask you something. Did you ever learn this method in an evangelism training course? Have you ever been taught... When witnessing to the lost, tell them they have no ability in themselves to come to Christ. And the only way they'll ever believe in Him is if God sovereignly draws them. I haven't seen that course. They tell you, make sure your breath is fresh. Because if your breath is not fresh, people won't get saved, okay? Now, Jonah didn't quite understand this concept. He didn't go to that school of evangelism. But they don't teach this in evangelism. But this is Yeshua's method. These Jews are arguing with him. We don't understand what you're saying. It's confusing. What do you mean? What? And he goes, you can't understand. You're dead in trespasses and sins. Unless God sovereignly draws you, you're not going to get it. And as the chapter goes on, it gets worse and worse. And finally he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, ah! And they all run away. It's like he's trying to push them away. Because unless they're drawn by God, they cannot come. Now, most people have tried to interpret the word draw here as invite, call, whatever. No, people, that's just foolish. All you have to do is a little bit of a word study here and understand what's going on here. All right? This word, the Greek word helkuo, it means to draw by irresistible superiority. There's no wooing, whatever that means. There's no calling, there's no inviting. This is a draw, a drag. The word always has the idea of drawing against resistance. But no matter the resistance, when God draws, men come. Elkua is only used eight times in the New Testament. Let me run through all eight of them real quick, just so there's no excuses here, okay? Next one is in John 12, 32. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Yeshua is saying here that through being lifted up, now lifted up here refers to death, resurrection, exaltation. All right? It's the cross. He'll draw all people to himself. The word draw here is Helkuo. Now, I can hear the universalists out there saying, if Elkuo means to draw by force, then everybody will come. Yeshua is not affirming that the whole world will be saved. All right? 
The all people here doesn't refer to everybody. It means all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles. The all men here in the context is triggered in John chapter 12 by the arrival of the Greeks coming to want to meet Yeshua. It's all people without distinction. Jew or Greek. It's not all people without exception. It's not everybody. All right? The Greeks are coming to see Christ. And he makes it clear. He's going to draw all types of men, Jews and Gentiles, to himself. All right, John 18.10. Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it. Do we really have to explain that? Okay. He didn't call it. He didn't woo it. He didn't sit there begging his sword. Please, sword, come out of here. He grabbed it and he pulled it out. Okay. That's simple. Okay. John 21.6. Here we got haul and fish. Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to hell kuo it. Here this net is so full of fish they can't drag it. They're not sitting in the boat call asking the fish to pull the net in. All right, they're doing all they can. They can't do it. They're unable. So Peter comes along. He went aboard and hauled the net ashore. He must have been a man, okay? They couldn't do it. He gets on there and he hauls it to shore. Hell, cool. He's not inviting. He's not calling. He's dragging. All right? Acts 16, 19. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace. Hell, cool. Okay? They're not being nice. They grabbed the whole of them and they're dragging them. Very clearly. They didn't invite Paul and Silas. They dragged them. Again, 2130. And all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. Clear? Helkuo. Dragged him out. James 2.6 But you have dishonored the poor man and not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court. Okay? Helkuo. They're dragging him to court. The usage of this word makes it very clear that Helkuo means to draw by irresistible superiority. That's all eight uses of Helkuo in the New Testament. It's really clear what it means. Okay, so Christ says, listen, nobody comes unless God drags them. And He doesn't drag everybody. Okay? Unless God drags them, and those ones He drags, He will raise up at the last day. This is what Calvinists call irresistible grace. Sovereign grace. It's not that God, God drags those who don't want to come. Okay, It's that God makes willing by grace. See, in regeneration, which is the first step, God gives a spiritual life which includes a desire for Him. All of a sudden you have spiritual life. Now you want God. You desire Christ. You believe in Christ. You trust Him because you've been born again. A sinner absolutely cannot come to Christ until God does something first with the sinner's nature. That something is what the Bible calls regeneration or the new birth. And it it is solely a work of God. Now since the Reformation, people have departed from the sovereignty of grace. Most professing Christians are not Christians. They're just professed to be. But of those who really are Christians, most have departed from the Reformation in this way. All of the Reformers, now I think this is significant, people, all the Reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, Cramner, the German Reformer, the Swiss Reformer, the French Reformer, the Scottish Reformer, the English Reformer, 
Every one of them believed not only in grace, but sovereign grace. When the Reformation broke out, these different countries, these men were coming to the same doctrinal conclusions without sharing emails with other people. Without looking on Facebook and saying, oh, look at what Luther believes now. That's a good idea. They were all, the Reformation broke out and all these people were coming to the same viewpoint because it was a work of God. And the majority of believers today try to have the grace without the sovereignty of the grace. Evangelical Christianity is trying to hold on to grace provided while rejecting grace applied. Grace proves irresistible because it destroys the disposition to resist. Why does God command us to do things we can't? Why does He tell us to believe if we can't? To show us how depraved we are. To show us the depth of our depravity. The foundation of Reformed theology is the doctrine of total depravity. Many people think that you know, they have trouble with the doctrine of election or predestination. The real problem is they don't understand how depraved we are. See, when God commands us to, to believe, we can't believe. We don't believe. We don't want to because we love darkness. And we don't seek after God. We don't care about God. We reject what we hate, which is God. And we love, choose what we like, which is darkness. We should be able to turn to God, but we're not because we made a choice in the garden. And we turned away from God. Now, let me just say a word here to those preterists who think that election was something that ended in AD 70. I've heard the nonsense, okay? And let me ask you, why did God have to draw men to Himself before AD 70, but now He doesn't? What changed? What changed in the nature of man that God no longer has to bring him to himself. Is man, all men born in a sinless condition now? And if any of this is true, where is this taught in Scripture? We just assume after 80-70, man's nature changed. No, God chose before, He chose after, because if He doesn't choose, you don't come. That's simple. The very fact that God commands us to do that which we're utterly unable, morally unable to do, shows how totally depraved we are, and if salvation is going to come at all, it's going to be applied sovereignly. This overthrows self-confidence. It convinces a sinner that their salvation is altogether out of their hands and shuts them up to a self-despairing dependence on the glorious grace of the sovereign Savior. It's all about... See, we have nothing to boast in. We have nothing to boast about except our God. Listen, Luther was committed to total depravity. That man could not choose God, as was Calvin. As we go backward in time, we see that Augustine taught the same thing in the 5th century. Augustine said, man's will is entirely corrupted by the fall, so that he must be considered totally depraved, unable to exercise his will in regard to the matter of salvation. The Reformers taught this in the 16th century. Augustine taught it in the 5th century. The Apostles taught it in the 1st century. The teaching of the Reformation is, regeneration precedes faith. Now see, the church today has it totally backwards. You believe, and then Church of Christ adds a whole bunch of other things, okay, and then you get regenerate. Where the Bible teaches, God regenerates you, then you believe because now you're alive. See, dead people don't believe. Alright? They don't believe. Faith is the evidence of regeneration, not the cause of it. This is the teaching of the Reformation. Look at 1 John 5.1. Everyone who believes that Yeshua is the Christ has been born 
of God. It's past tense. It's in the perfect tense here. He's, it's past. He's been born of God. Weiss says this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ out from God has been born and as a result is His child. Law said the divine beginning is the antecedent, not the consequent of the believing. We are not regenerated to the act of baptism or anything else we do. Regeneration is a sovereign act of God. We believe, we are baptized, we obey because we have been born again. The church of Christ has it backwards. Spiritual death brings an insensitivity to the things of God. It's spiritual slavery, the prisoners of which are helpless. That's what total depravity is all about. It doesn't mean that you know, men are as bad as they can be. It means they're bad off as they can be. The bottom line is this. Our hope doesn't lie in our own will. It's our will that got us in this predicament, all right? We're all sure for condemnation unless God would somehow incline our will to the opposite direction. We have a Savior who is mighty enough to rescue us from ourselves. Clearly, God must do something. We've made a choice. Our will is spoken. We're hopelessly lost unless God will choose otherwise. That's the doctrine of total depravity. The famous Baptist preacher C.H. Spurgeon wrote this, I have my own private opinion that there is no such thing as preaching Christ and Him crucified unless we preach what nowadays is known as Calvinism. It is a nickname to call it Calvinism. Calvinism is the gospel. I agree with him because what he's saying is it's all about God. Okay, It's not about man doing this or doing that, man performing something. It's about God and nothing else. I do not believe we can preach the gospel if we do not preach justification by faith without works nor unless we preach the sovereignty of God and His dispensation of grace, nor unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of Jehovah, nor do I think we can preach the gospel unless we base it upon the special and particular redemption of His elect and chosen people which Christ brought out upon the cross. It is my conviction that Calvinism is biblical because it is exalting God. It's saying, listen, salvation is of the Lord. It's not of of God and you working together. It's not of you doing certain things. It's not of you obeying certain laws. The church today is being flooded with a new gospel, a humanistic gospel, where man is the center, and it's all about man, and it's all about man's performance. But in the Bible, the whole purpose of salvation is that God might receive the glory. He is the reference point. It's all about Him. In the new gospel, man is the reference point. We want to uplift man. We want man to feel good. We want man to be exalted. But in the, the true gospel is all about God. The gospel is this, people. God saves sinners. That's it. That's what it's about. And that's the proclamation. God saves sinners. And we tell the world that. And when God calls a man from darkness to light, he believes that. Because he's been given light. And see, in this doctrine, God, not man, receives all the glory in salvation. It's not about us. There's no bragging rights. Okay? I see baptismal regeneration as an attack on the gospel. First of all, they destroy the word belief. They add all kinds of works to the word belief. Over and over, the Bible calls upon man to believe on the Lord Yeshua the Christ for salvation. But Church of Christ says, you need more than just to believe in Yeshua. You've got to be baptized. You've got to do these other works. Or you can't be saved. 
These doctrinal errors attack the gospel, and we got to be careful. We can't stand with this error. Like I said, the gospel has to be put above eschatology. And I fear that's what's happening, and that's what scares me about this movement, is eschatology is being primary. That's all that matters. Everybody's gathering under the umbrella of eschatology with all these weird, different beliefs, and it's destructive to the gospel. The universal is saying everybody's saved. That destroys the gospel. Church of Christ saying basically nobody's saved unless they go through them. Destruction of the gospel. Listen, it's through Christ's obedience that we are made righteous. It is not anything that we do. So by the one man's obedience, Christ, the many were made righteous. If you think that your righteousness can be so good that God will save you and keep you, you have a very high view of man and a very low view of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at Your Word. Lord, I pray that everybody that hears this, Father, would be a Berean. That they would not take what I'm saying at face value, but they'd study it for themselves. They'd dig it out. They'd search. They'd study to learn the truth of Your Word. Father, thank You for Your grace to us. I thank You for the Reformation, Lord, and for these godly men who took a stand and all came to the same conclusions, Lord, that You are sovereign over all. Thank You, Lord, for who You are. Amen. Okay, Gary. Um, in the Church of Christ view, were the apostles believers? Mm-hmm. They Yeah, well, they couldn't have been because the Church of Christ didn't exist back then. So, uh, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, well, I guess you could hold that to the apostles were the Church of Christ. My phone is blowing up. (laughs) David. Uh, I was just thinking about this passage in Romans, which is in chapter 6, you know, talking about baptism and regeneration of new life. I guess it kind of, I guess it ties into what we're talking about. I don't know how Church of Christ, I guess they would say this is speaking of water baptism. Um, it says, are you ignorant that as many as were baptized into Christ Yeshua to his death were baptized? We were buried together then with him through the baptism to the death that even as Christ was raised up out of the dead through the glory of the Father, so also we in newness of life might walk. For if we have been, for if we have become planted together to the likeness of His death, so also we shall be of the rising again. This knowing that our old man was crucified with Him, in order that the body of the sin may be made useless for our no longer serving the sin. For he who has died has been set free from the sin, and if we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised up out of the dead, doth no more die, death over him has no more lordship. For in that he died, to the sin he died once, and in that he lives, he lives to God. So also ye, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to the sin, living to God, and you show the Christ our Lord. So, I mean, how would that... Well, baptism in that text, can be translated as identification. And that baptism, that's one of the uses of baptism. Baptism means to be identified. They were baptized with Moses. They were identified with Moses. 
Now, the Church of Christ will find water in Romans 6. So there's no water in that passage, but they get water. Wherever baptism is mentioned, they get water, okay? And I know this because I've talked to them. And I remember asking a Church of Christ guy, I said, well, you see baptism in, water baptism in Romans 6? Absolutely. Everywhere, you know, like I said, they, they just, baptism to them is water baptism. Uh, Haviv asks, he says, man's disobedience refer to Adam and man's, man's disobedience refers to Adam and man's obedience refers to Christ, correct? Yes. We are obedient in Christ. Christ was the only one who lived a perfect sinless life. We are in Him by faith. We share His righteousness. All right, someone asked, if Paul was alive before the law, how could he be dead in Adam? And how about them that didn't sin in the likeness of Adam? Well, Paul was not alive all right, before Adam. Okay? In Romans 7, Paul's not talking about himself. Okay? He is putting himself in Israel's sin, in Israel's place, and that's what he's talking about there. He's not saying that, you know, I was alive and then the law came about. No. I think he's referring to Adam there in that sense. That's who he's putting himself in the shoes of Adam and saying, listen, I was alive and you know, I was fine and the law came said, don't do this. Boy, and then I did it and then I'm in trouble. All right? Okay, yeah. It's just, you know, like I said, the bottom line to me in the Church of Christ is the destruction of the Gospel because belief does not mean belief, first of all. Okay? It means doing a whole bunch of things besides trusting Christ. And... It's a, an obedience system. It's a man-made, you've got to obey, you've got to do these certain things or you're not in. And, you know, and especially when they start isolating it to their, they're the only ones with the truth. They're far from having the truth. Okay? And that's why I said it's an anti-Reformation movement. They're going back to what the Catholic Church held long before the Reformation ever took place. Veronica. Um, one thing that when I read about Martin Luther, one thing that he did because he knew he was sinful was he constantly punished himself. He was always like fasting or beating himself. And, and you know, those, when those verses came out about by faith, it was like, a, you know, he got hit over the head. You know, why am I punishing myself? Because only God can make me, you know, can save me. So it was kind of interesting how, you know, he tried to do the works thing. He was, you know, working towards his salvation. He was very serious about God. Like I said, he earned his doctorate in theology. He was teaching the Bible. He just didn't have a clue what it said. And all of a sudden, God got a hold of him. You know, it wasn't because anything Luther did. He didn't say, I need to go get baptized and I'll be all right. No, he realized, you know, this is what the Bible teaches. And like I said, to me, the, the interesting thing about the Reformation is all these guys, Luther, Calvin, Zwingling, Knox, Cramner, they all came to the same conclusions at the same time. Because God was doing a work, breaking away from the deadness of the Catholic Church and the doctrines that it taught. You know, it held the church in bondage. And let me tell you something, people. It's a psychological move to tell people in your congregation, if you don't go to church, you're going to hell. You see what it just did? Yeah, well, then you better start showing up for church. Because, you know, the other alternative is to go to hell. And then you add, well, since you're here, if you don't tithe, you go to hell. And then, oh, my word, things are good at church because we're keeping everybody in bondage. But listen, the bondage of the law was over, okay? We're free in Christ. 